I'm going to invite you, I'll just say good morning to you, and glad to see everyone here uh, for the, the series that we're in together on the topic of believe. We're going through the first three chapters of Genesis and dealing with really the, the major themes of what makes Christianity um, and the beliefs that, that, that summarize the pillars of what Christianity is about. And together we've, we've looked at the identity of God, the identity of man, our sinful nature, God's plan of redemption and redeeming us from the curse of sin and Adam's uh, sin that's upon us and his plan for that and his kingdom. And today one of the topics we are going to address, I'm going to let you know ahead of time, I am going, um, we're not going to keep this very, uh, well this is going to go very wide and very deep because we're on the, the topic of the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity, we're going to look at in the beginning in Genesis, the first couple of chapters and how it establishes itself, but we're going to trace this theme throughout scripture. So I'm going to let you know ahead of time, we're going to bounce around. Um, I want to hit this hard. I want to hit it heavy. I want to answer all of the difficult questions that people may ask about this. I would say people find it difficult. I find it very simplistic in the way uh, Scripture communicates that. If you have any questions about the Trinity, this should alleviate some of those. This is a pillar of the Christian faith. And so this is one of those topics I'm going to address so deeply that this is probably, if if you have any questions about the, um, the idea of the Trinity um, you may even want to go back to our website and watch this sermon over again just so you can uh, have some of the, the questions that I often hear about the Trinity and living in Utah. A lot of the questions I find about the topic of the Trinity are based on false assumptions of what Christianity believes about the Trinity. And so when you go to answer a question for someone about the Trinity, when they're already operating, operating from a false assumption, you have to first begin with the correct way of thinking before you can answer questions related to what the Trinity is about. And I hope this is as helpful for you as it is for those you may be able to communicate what the idea of the Trinity is. There are three principles or three truths about the Trinity I really want to harp on and for us to to take away from that together. We're going to make some application together and then I'm going to answer some peripheral questions about the Trinity. When it comes to the the topic of the Trinity, the Bible certainly uh, proclaims it but one of the complexities is that I, while the Bible proclaims that, I don't think that we can fully comprehend it, though I believe we can apprehend it. What I mean is, when it, when it comes to the idea of God, when we dive into the nature of God, the character of God, we, we might expect that since God is a being higher than us, holier than us, greater than us, that to wrap our minds around everything that is connected to God, our minds may not fully be able to comprehend it, but it can, it can in some ways apprehend it. Let me just give you some examples. The, the topic of, of the Trinity isn't the only thing I would say is something that we can, cannot comprehend but apprehend. We talk about God's nature in general, um, the incommunicable characteristics of God, which is characteristics we don't relate to him in. Those are often characteristics we can't always uh, comprehend as it relates to God. Meaning, when you talk about an eternal God existing before anything else exists, it's, it's not a topic that we can necessarily comprehend in our mind, but we can apprehend that that, that, is, that is who God is. Uh, someone who is all-powerful, all-knowing. That is the, the being and existence of, of who God is, incomprehensible, but apprehendable. When we talk about the, the word Trinity... I think it's important to say that it is not found in Scripture. The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible, and that doesn't mean that it's not biblical. Because when we say the word Trinity and talk about it not being found in Scripture, there are many words we use today in relationship to understanding God that are not found in Scripture, though we use it in summary of His identity. 
Words like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, not words found in scripture, but words that we've come to understand who God is, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. Uh, The word atonement was one that uh, William Tyndale formulated when he was translating scripture. It's one that we've come to embrace in our English language, but previous to Tyndale wasn't a word that was used. It was a word that he, he formulated together in order to summarize the identity of what God has done for us and the way that we can understand it in our language. And so that was an invented word. Just because the word Trinity is made up doesn't mean it's not biblical. I've heard people often assert that the word Trinity was a part of the apostasy that came in the Nicene Creed, um, which is uh, completely inaccurate to history. Um, Tertullian was the first one historically that used the word Trinity. He, he started, in, uh, Tertullian was born in the second century. He was a church uh, leader or early church father. He used the word, he, was, he actually spoke Latin, so the word he used was Trinitas, where he said it's una substantia tres persona, which is one substance, three persons, and describing uh, the Trinity. I, uh, and, and just particularly to me, do not, do not uh, prefer the word Trinity. I actually like the word triunity, which emphasizes the threeness of God and the oneness. The Trinity, I think, emphasizes the threeness. The word unity emphasizes the oneness of God. But tr- the word Trinity came long before the Nicene Creed. It, it, was a, it was a word that Tertullian used to summarize what he discovered in Scripture so that rather than just define the full nature of God, he summarized this idea or this, this concept of God's nature in just one word. And so rather than ex- give this long, lengthy explanation, his purpose in, the, in, in using the word Trinity was to, to fine-tune what he meant about the, the nature of God rather than describing it out. And so if we were to just begin the journey of understanding why we believe in the Trinity, where this comes from in in the Bible, if you were to just start in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, it says this, the very first few verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So what you see in the very first two verses of the Bible is God speaking and the Spirit hovering, right? You start to see this this idea of a distinction in his being. And even the book of John, when it starts in John chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts in a similar way that, that Genesis starts, In the beginning... And just as, as Genesis starts with, with God speaking and the Spirit hovering here, we're looking at God the Father and Jesus. Jesus is referred to as the Word. The, the Word uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. What in the world is happening here? If you go back to the book of, of Genesis chapter 1 again and you see when God's making man and he makes us in his image, listen to the way he describes this. God said, look at this in the plural, let us... Make man in our image according to our likeness and let, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the creeping things that creep on all the earth, right? The cattle and all over the earth and every creeping thing. So verse 26, he says in the plural, let us make man. And so people have asked the question, okay, who is this us? What is, what is this plural word that's being used in the context of scripture? When God makes man, what is he formulating it in? And some people here have asserted, well, it's, it's God and the angels. He's building us in that concept. But then when you read verse 27, it explains it. He says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
So it starts in this plurality in verse 26, but then it goes to the singular thought in verse 27. What is this plural yet singular thing that's being described in Scripture? Another interesting comment that we've used in the series together is Deuteronomy 6.4. We've gone to this often. It's the great Shema of Israel. It, the word Shema comes actually from the first couple of words, Hero Israel. This, this word in Hebrew says, uh, Shema Israel, uh, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. That's what it reads in, in the Hebrew. And this, one, this word for one is an interesting word. Echad in Hebrew, it's literally a plurality of one when you, when you study it in the Hebrew language. The way that Hebrew commentaries often use to describe this word is a cluster of grapes. This, this, this substance of one, yet plurality. And so it's saying about Elohim, Yah, or, or Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh is a plurality of one. This Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is talking about the existence of only one God, yet it's also at the same time referring to the plurality of this one God. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, it says this, Jesus declaring to his disciples at the end of the book of Matthew, this is what he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, and look what he tells them to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The authority of all three carried out in the mission that he's called the church to. And the interesting thing about this comment is that when he makes this statement, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the word name is in the singular, yet when he communicates what we're to baptize in, he mentions in the plural. Now, why doesn't it say names rather than name? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God, referring to the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The triunity of God working in his church. Peculiar how all this plays out when you consider the gamut of Scripture. When Tertullian uses the word trinitas or trinity or triunity, he's using this word to express the nature of God as it plays itself out in Scripture. And so when we use the word Trinity, the definition of the, tr- of the Trinity is very simplistic in its understanding. All it is is looking at the evidence of what is stated about God throughout Scripture and then re- recommunicating to that in the word of Trinitas. So when we define the word Trinity, what is it that we mean? I'm going to show you this to you. It's, it's three simple thoughts. Ready? There is only one God who exists in three eternal persons that are distinct and equal. There is only one God who exists in three eternal persons. Each of those persons are distinct and equal. One being three persons. Una substantia, trace persona. That's what Tertullian said. That is the Trinity. And when you look at it in Scripture, this is the way it communicates to us in the Bible. We've said this repeatedly throughout this series together. I don't don't know that we need to go back and highlight much of this, but the Bible communicates repeatedly there is only one God. In fact, just to highlight this, I've I've gone to other verses that we have not used in this this series together to reiterate the fact that the Bible says there is only one God. 1 Kings 8.60, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. 
Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Deuteronomy 4.35, unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. There is only one God. This one God exists eternally in three persons. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So one God existing in three persons. You see in this passage that God is referred to as the Father. There is God the Father. In addition, in, in other scriptures, it refers, refers to Jesus as God. Colossians 2.9, we studied recently together. For in him, talking about Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. This is a particularly important verse because when people study the idea of the Trinity, the tendency is sometimes is to lower the identity of Jesus, meaning he's, he's um, what they call subordinate to the Father, which isn't biblical, or, or he's one-third of God, which isn't biblical either, um, Jesus is completely, fully God. The Father is completely, fully God. The Holy Spirit is completely, fully God. They're not subordinate to one another, but rather equal. And so it's telling us in Hebrews 1, and referring to the the nature of Christ, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is everything that the Father is in the nature that is of God. And then the Holy Spirit, the same thing. John 4.24 tells us that God is spirit. doesn't say God has a spirit, God is a spirit, but rather God is spirit. In Acts 5, verse 3 and 4, Ananias and Sapphira, when they're, when they're lying to the apostles, they're, they're also lying to God. And it says this to them. This is just the summary of the statements. In verse 3, chapter 5 of Acts, it says, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then in reference to the Holy Spirit, it says this, you have not lied to men, but to God. It's saying the Holy Spirit is God in this passage of Scripture. When we talk about the, the uh, three personages, or in, in the one being that is God, uh, what makes the Holy Spirit a person or personality is demonstrated in the fact that uh, there's passages of Scripture that tell us For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can grieve as a person. Or or in in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, uh, do not not quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. And so the representation, the the personality of the Holy Spirit is seen in its its ability to be grieved or to be quenched. And so you see the, the Godhead being explained, being represented in three persons in these passages of Scripture. And these aren't the only ones in the Bible. There, there is a plethora demonstrating this. And you, you see it in the equality that's, that's talked about as each person is mentioned as being distinct and equal. In Matthew 28, when Jesus declared to the church, go into all the world and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's showing the distinction of the triunity, the distinction of the Spirit, distinction of the Son, distinction of the Father, and the equality being baptized in all three. 
In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, Jesus at the baptism, it shows the triunity of God at work here again. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and, and light, lighting on him. And behold, a voice of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In this passage, you see the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus being baptized, the Father speaking, and the Spirit descending. Jesus himself said this in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. This idea of one isn't one in purpose. In fact, if if what Jesus was saying here is I and the Father are one in purpose, if you read the rest of this passage into John 10 and verse 33, it tells us the Jews picked up stones to stone him because he not only, he made himself equal with God. That was the claim that they said. Jesus is making himself equal with God. And so they wanted to kill him. If what Jesus meant in this passage was that I and the Father are just one in purpose, the Jews would have heard Jesus and said, you know what, we are too. We want to live the purpose of the Father in this world as well. There would have been no reason to stone Jesus. But they understood exactly what Jesus was saying and by saying, I and the Father are one. He's equating equality with the Father, which is why the Jews wanted to stone him. You see the distinction and the equality of the three persons making up the one being of the Trinity within the passages of Scripture. Desiring God's ministries led by John Piper, when it talks about the definition of Trinity, this is the way he says it. This is the way they define it. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in persons. These definitions express three crucial truths. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. That's an important concept to wrap our mind around. Remember, there is only one God who exists eternally, each person distinct and equal in their nature. The reason this is important to grab a hold of is because of the misconception I often hear communicated about the Trinity. For example, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, this is a very popular one I hear people bring up. Well, how can Jesus... Be being baptized and the Father speaking. They, this is often referred to as the ventriloquist passage of Scripture. Uh, people think that, that we believe Jesus is the Father and, they, and it is the Spirit. And so they read this passage before Christians and think, well, how could you believe in the Trinity when Jesus is here and the Father is speaking and the Spirit's descending? What is Jesus throwing his voice from heaven, pretending to be the Father? As if that we believe that the Father and Jesus are the same thing. And we don't. That is not biblical. Anytime someone takes you this passage as if it disproves the Trinity, you can look at this passage and be like, I believe this passage. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit. They are distinct. To assert that we would believe they're the same thing is what's called modalism. And that's been declared heretical throughout church history. We do not believe that. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct from one another. They're not the same person. One of the the concepts then that goes further from this is, well, the reason that you believe in the Trinity and you're so confused about this is because the Nicene Creed 
Constantine came along in, in three, uh, after 312. He, he, he gave the Edict of Milan, which, which for the first time made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire in 325. He brought together the church for, for the Nicene Creed. Over 318 church leaders gathered together. They wrote the Creed of the church. And, and Constantine, because he was a worldly man, he corrupted it. And that's where Christianity was perverted. That's where apostasy came in. And from that point forward, it was just darkness on the world because of the corruption of Constantine presented into the church. That's, that's what assert, it's asserted. And that's why, if Christians believe in the Trinity, why they're wrong. And I, I just want us to know this morning, if someone shares that with you, do not let them walk away believing that, okay? That is inaccurate to history, it is a gross perversion of what happened in history. It is so far from the truth. It's, it's almost, if, if you just studied church history and you genuinely think that people believe that, a part of you just wants to feel bad that someone would believe that, and a part of it is laughable. I mean, just, just to think that that concept, that, that that's the portraying of belief of what church history was, it's not... It's a gross misrepresentation. And so let me just share with you a little bit about church history so you know, okay? Um, you'll, you'll hear this come up sometimes when people dialogue. The word Catholic. The word Catholic was used from the first century of the early church. The word Catholic literally means just universal. The Catholic church to its earliest can date itself to around the sixth century with Pope Gregory. Okay, so the Catholic Church did not come into existence in the first century, but the church used the word Catholic to represent itself. It referred to itself as the universal church, the, uh, the people of God. And so that, that term was used, and when the Catholic Church was born, they began to just grab hold of that word to refer to themselves as the universal church into the sixth century. In the sixth century, there, there wasn't just the Catholic Church. The church was divided between the East and the West. There was the Eastern Orthodox, the Catholic Church, and there were other branches of Christianity uh, during that time as well, okay? But dealing with the detail of the Nicene Creed, just so you're aware of what happens. Christianity began to be persecuted from the very first century. Uh, people like Peter and Paul were, were killed by the Emperor Nero. For the next 250 years, Christianity faces persecution, out of the 250 years, the next 250 years after Nero's persecution in the 60s AD, sometimes it was localized, sometimes it was throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, Trajan, the emperor Trajan, is, there's writings of him writing to Pliny the Younger talking about killing Christians and how they go about uh, executing justice against Christianity. Uh, Ignatius, Irenaeus, giving their lives in the first century, they were discipled by John as, as followers of the Apostle John. They gave their lives for Christ. Uh, into the next 250 years, as persecution is throughout the Roman Empire, the last emperor before, um, before Constantine was a man by the name of Diocletian. Diocletian's desire was to wipe Christianity off of the earth and to burn every copy of the Bible. That was his stated goal against Christianity. After Diocletian, that's when Constantine comes in. Constantine gives the Edict of Milan. He converts to Christ, having seen a vision of Christ or the cross going into battle. He becomes a believer, writes the Edict of Milan, declaring the legalization of Christianity. And now for the first time, Christian leaders can gather together without the fear of persecution. He brings them together in Nicaea. They formulate the Nicene Creed, 318 
church leaders gather together to write the formulation of what is the belief of Christianity. One of the reasons that, that Constantine calls the Nicene Creed together is because of a man named Arius. Arius was a heretic who taught against Christian, or taught against the Trinity. Constantine brings all of the church leaders together to give a declaration of, of the Trinity and invites Arius to the event. When these individual leaders gather together, they're just coming off the back of persecution. I have read church history related to the Nicene Creed and the individuals that gathered together. Some historians estimate that over 300 of those 318 that gathered for the Nicene Creed had been in prison, had suffered shame, had been beaten for their faith in Christ. Some of them were blind, some of them were lame, some of them didn't have use of their hands or their arms. These were individuals that stood for their faith and belief. They were not afraid to stand up to the emperor. There was no way Constantine was going to influence them because no emperor to that point had, and they were willingly giving up their lives to stand for what they believed in. And to to suggest that Constantine influenced those who had previously been in jail, who had been released by the Edict of Milan, now gathering together is laughable to consider. These individuals were giving their lives for Christ, were being beaten for Christ, and they were not afraid to stand up to an emperor. And so when they gathered together for the first time publicly, they were able to articulate the beliefs and pillars of what made up Christianity. Arius was invited, a heretic related to the topic of the Trinity. They even gave an opportunity to share during that time. Interesting fact about the Nicene Creed is that Santa Claus was present. If you go back and you can look at this later for fun, but as Arius was sharing his heretical view on Christianity, Santa Claus actually punched him in the face. You can get t-shirts that says Santa Claus punched Arius in the face, or at least that's what history says. And so if you hate on the Nicene Creed, you hate Santa Claus. (laughs) um, 318 people sharing the beliefs of Christianity, when they finally articulated the, the faith of Christianity and they put it to a vote, one person disagreed along with his follower on the topic of the Trinity. Do you know who it was? Arius. Arius and one of his followers. The rest of Christianity formulates what is the Trinity or, or, or proclaims, I should say, what is the Trinity. They didn't invent the concept here. Uh, uh, Tertullian had already been using the word and it has been communicated in Scripture. And one of the reasons I think Arius had such a misunderstanding of Scripture is because he didn't understand the way it was communicated in the New Testament. I want to share some of that with you now. Arius comes from the background of a place where they spoke Latin rather than Greek and not understanding the Greek manuscripts of the Bible, I think led to his perversion of understanding how the Trinity works. And so let me just throw out for us some of the questions that are often asked about the Trinity or misconceptions that are developed in the Trinity that people try to root itself in Scripture. The first comes from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. You find the word firstborn related to Jesus. In fact, Jehovah's Witness will often come here to show you that Jesus was born. They'll, they'll assert that Jesus was born and is a lesser being than a, the Father. One of the problems with that is they don't understand the origin of the Greek text from which this verse is written. Um, nor the nature of Jesus, as is communicated in Scripture. And so in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it says this, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. And then from there, it goes on to explain the deity of Christ. But let's just harp on this verse for a minute. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In Greek, there are two words for firstborn. One is prototokos, and the other is prototesis, okay? Prototokos is what's used here. Prototesis means firstborn as well, but something different related to the firstborn. Prototokos means preeminent, the one who rules, the firstborn who rules. Prototesis means the firstborn in order, okay? When they use prototokos in this passage and not prototesis, what they're saying is Jesus is the preeminent one, the ruler, not literally the firstborn, okay? In, in, in uh, Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, talking about King David, it refers to him as the firstborn. But Jesus, or excuse me, David wasn't the firstborn in his family. When it's referring to David as being the firstborn, it's saying he is the preeminent one. He is the king of Israel. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, when it's talking about Jesus in reference to being firstborn, it's not literally saying prototesis, the first one born, but rather prototokos, the first one in preeminence. Jesus is the ruler. He is the head. He is everything that the church is centered under, and the rest of Colossians goes on to explain this. So the, the phrase firstborn doesn't mean the first one literally born. To just assert that from the text is a misunderstanding of what's communicated in the Greek language. It's a misunderstanding of the triunity of God. In addition to that, the phrase son of God, right? Mark 1.1 starts off like this. In the, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus then must literally be the physical son of God, right? That's, that's the assertion people make. And so that makes him less than the father because he was, he was the son of God. Now keep in mind here, This is the nature of God trying to explain itself to us in concepts that we can grasp in our own relational understanding. And so when it's trying to explain the nature of God, it's using the phrase son of God. But this is what's important to understand with the phrase son of God is to look at the way that this passage or this statement is used within scripture. In fact, when you look at other places of Scripture, the phrase son of is used to to, to state the nature of or the representation of, okay? So you think about Judas for a minute. Judas in John 17 is called the son of perdition or literally the son of hell. It's not telling us hell had children, but the nature of hell is represented in Judas. James and John are called the sons of thunder, Thunder can't have kids, right? But what it's saying to us is the nature of thunder is represented in in their behavior. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Not that encouragement had children, but that the nature of encouragement is represented in, in Barnabas. So when Jesus is called the son of God, It's saying to us that the nature of God is in him, which is congruent with the rest of Scripture. Jesus, in him, the deity dwells, Colossians 1.15 and 2.9. He is the exact representation of his being in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. I and the Father are one in John chapter 10 and verse 30. In John chapter 20 and verse 28, my Lord and my God, Thomas says before Jesus. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, you may turn to this and say, well, what about this when it references Jesus' son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I would say for us that in reference to being the son, recognize that it says he is the only one like this. 
that the nature that Jesus possesses, Scripture makes clear, it's only in Jesus, it's not in anyone else. In fact, when it talks about us being children of God or sons of God, it says to those who received him become children of God, and you're not by nature a child of God, but rather you have to be adopted in. By nature, Jesus is, is the Son of God, the only one who is like this, the only begotten Son of God. And when you study this phrase, only begotten, in the Greek, it's monogenes which is where we get the word singular, mono, and genetics. It's literally saying Jesus is the only one of this kind or class. And so when scientifically you rank species according to kind or class, Jesus is the only one that could be ranked with the Father. He is the only one that possesses this nature. He is the only begotten Son of God. The Greek text isn't trying to, to, to get us to take this literal in the sense that he is physically birthed from God, but rather saying to us that he is the representation of the nature of God. God is in him. It's a claim to his deity. What about the phrase father then, right? It talks about, you know, we talked about Jesus being the son, but what about God being the father? I'd say the same thing again. God is communicating his, his character, his attributes to us in concepts that we can understand relationally. And when you go back and study the phrase Father as it relates to God within Scripture, it relates to spiritual beings within Scripture. I mean, it uses the phrase Father for the devil and it uses the phrase Father for Jesus as well. In John eight forty four, Jesus, in referring to those that are rejecting him, he says, you are your father, the devil, Jesus isn't literally asserting here that the devil had children, but rather the nature of their behavior is reflecting where they are from. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, in talking about Jesus and his coming, it says this, for a child will be born to us, some will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, in this passage, is referenced as the Father. And so when you look at problem passages of Scripture or places that people go and misunderstanding the, the Trinity, it's, it's honestly just their misunderstanding of what a passage of Scripture says. Firstborn is his preeminence, not the order of him coming into existence the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature has always been consistent. He doesn't change. And the reason he doesn't change is because he is eternal God. He has always been. So our revelation refers to him as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That's why Jesus called himself the great I am, the one who exists, or the self-existent one in, in John eight fifty eight. His nature is that of the Father. It's consistent in being the same because that's what eternal God is. And Jesus being God, therefore, holds the same nature. It's the reason Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us he is the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. So when you study the idea of, of firstborn it, it, in relationship to the Trinity, it's the preeminence of Christ. The phrase son of God isn't reflecting physically being born from God, but rather the nature of God. Again, the word only begotten son isn't saying that he, is, he, he came from God being born again, but rather the nature of God being expressed in the son. He is the only one of that kind or class. Verse 
And so when Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 says, go into all the world and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is exactly as Tertullian communicated. Trinitas, tres persona, una substantia. Three persons or three personalities represented in one being. Jesus isn't less than the Father. The Spirit isn't less than Christ. Equal to one another. One God, eternally existing, distinctly and equally in three persons. That's the Trinity. It is not always comprehensible, but when you just look at the verses of the Bible, it's apprehensible. You say in your head, well, how, how can I wrestle with this in my mind? Or how can I even begin to grasp how God is one being but, but three in person? How does that work? And I've got to be honest and tell you, every example in nature breaks down to some degree because there is nothing like it in nature. That's the incomprehensibility of the, nat- the nature of God. But here, here's something that might help your mind think about it. You being created in God's image, just think about this for a moment. God created you, there's theological debate over a trichotomy or a dichotomy, we'll go with dichotomy here. God created you as a two-part being, okay? Body and spirit. When you die, your body will be separated from your spirit, right? But the Bible promises that God will resurrect your body and join body and spirit again in a glorified state. But when you die and your body and spirit are separated, according to Scripture, though your spirit is in one place and though your body is in another, it's still you. You will be separate, but yet you will still be one. Your body and spirit will still be you, and God will resurrect that and rejoin that together. So if you could just conceive in your moment how you could separate from yourself let me give you a little bit of an idea of how the nature of God could do the same. But let me give you some practical thought too. Why is the doctrine of the Trinity so important for us? Well, God created us in his nature, right? Which, to be honest, is probably why we as people yearn for community so much because God within his nature is community. One of the TV shows that I have maybe a slight addiction to is the show called Alone, where they drop people off on an island by themselves and they have to see how long they can survive. They've done two seasons of this. I think the longest guy that survived is like a little over 60-some days. Most of the people that go on this island do pretty good. They get survivalists. They do pretty good in surviving on their own. But the thing that drives them crazy is that they're alone. There's no companionship there. Within the Godhead... There is community. And you being created in God's image long for community. But here's the cool thing about God's community. God's community isn't dependent upon us. It doesn't need us. His community among the Trinity is perfect. It's a demonstration to us of how our community should interact. Right? 
mean, when you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, I thought I, oh, chapter 13 and verse 14, it explains how this community works on our, for our benefit, that God doesn't need us. But even still, he chooses to lavish his grace and love upon you that you may experience fellowship with him for all of eternity. God's community isn't dependent upon him, but look, this community works for our well-being. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross and the love of God displayed to us as he sent the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now you think about the way biblically we're taught to pray in Scripture. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We pray to the Father because of the authority of the Son or in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells his people. God is community not dependent upon us, but in his community he demonstrates to us why in our nature we long to be a part of something greater than ourselves. Why companionship is so important. Why love is to be expressed. Why we live life seeking fellowship with one another, it's because it's rooted in the identity of the Trinity. And so when we think about the Trinity for us, not only is it biblical, not only is it a pillar of the Christian faith, it's also foundational to the way that we express ourselves as human beings. You can't have community without unity, and you can't have unity without community. God's desire for his church is to make his glory known. And I think one of the most beautiful ways that we display his glory is in the community that we carry. In fact, let me just close with this thought in Acts chapter 2, in verse 42. It's talking about the church here. And it says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so you see, as they're describing themselves living as a community and how beautiful it looks, and listen to this. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. When a community lives in unity the way that God designs us to, it is beautiful, it is attractive, it is glorious. Seeing the way the Trinity works for the redemption of our souls, the Father sending the Son, Son giving his life that the Spirit may indwell us. It is beautiful, it is attractive, it is redeemed to us. When we as a church display that unity that God has demonstrated to us in the way that we live our lives, it is beautiful, it is attractive, it is healing, it is helpful to those around us. Within your own home, God creating marriage in the beginning of the book of Genesis, when you experience unity within your relationship, the home is blessed, it is beautiful, it is attractive, it is life-giving to those around you. The Trinity is biblical, it is practical, and it's a pillar of our faith. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. 
If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.